Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. Today is Sunday, Jan- excuse me. Today is Sunday, March 29, 2015. The share ID number for Friday, March 27th, is 7427. That's 7427. This morning, A Vision for You presents Rocketed into the Fourth Dimension. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening. Their real advantage is that they are a specific method for producing a personal transformation, a change in the way a person thinks, feels, and behaves. The secret of these steps is that in spite of all odds, it is possible to effectuate such dramatic change in our personality, character, and values. We submit to a simple process that is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. The results are disproportionate to our efforts, yet our efforts are required to sustain and enlarge it. We've been rocketed into a fourth dimension, beyond the three dimensions of the physical world, into a spiritual way of life. A new world comes into view. Our disease of compulsive overeating was a progressive downward spiral. Spirituality, the 12-step way of life, is now a progressively upward spiral. As a result of these steps, we have an effective relationship with power. The channel of grace in us is cleared. The sunlight of the spirit deep down inside us is allowed to shine up and through us. Joining us this morning is Becca W., a recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Becca is dedicated to living this 12-step way of life and is eager to carry the message of recovery. Good morning. Welcome to you, Becca. Thanks, Leah. Can you can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. Um, thank you so much for your service, Leah, and for having me on today. Hello, everyone. My name is Becca W., and I'm a gratefully recovered compulsive overeater from Maryland. Thank you all for joining me this morning. This presentation is entitled Rocketed to the Fourth Dimension, and um we can ask, where did that title come from? Well, Bill mentions the fourth dimension on two pages in the big book, once in chapter one and once in chapter two. On page eight in Bill's story, he said, I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. And then on page 25, and there's a solution, he says, we have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. Now, Bill took a writing class, and he was told not to use the same words over and over again, and that's why we see God, him with a capital H, spirit of the universe. So here we see the words rocketed and catapulted, and they essentially mean the same thing. But there is a slight difference in the way that I interpret both of these. For me, the first one was written in a way that indicates Bill had had spiritual experiences but he had not yet taken all of his steps. And the second time, he has had his spiritual awakening and he's been living in recovery. I was soon to be catapulted. 
And then he says, we have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension. There's a slight difference there. So what is the difference between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening? Well, in Bill's case, he had had much self-knowledge after being admitted into town's hospital. He really understood himself at that point. And when Ebby came to visit, it was really powerful for Bill. You know, Ebby was, um, came off of the Oxford group. That's how he learned about the um, six Oxford tenants. And so he was recovered. He was, um, Bill was his first person that he was coming to to, to um, practice the last tenant, which was helping other alcoholics. And as Ebby sat down with him, you know, um, the Oxford Tenants was all about Jesus Christ. It was first century Christianity. So when Ebby was talking to him, you know, you must have Jesus in your life and this and that, Bill's mind was wandering. We see it in the text in the big book. He kind of goes off on a tangent until Ebby says, you can come up with your own conception of God. And that was really powerful for Bill. So at this point, um, you know, we can argue that Bill was having spiritual experiences, but when he realized that he could create his own conception, and then he took the steps in the hospital when he was there for that last time, he had had his spiritual awakening. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because in order to rock it into the fourth dimension, we must have a spiritual awakening. And if we turn to page 27 and we read about Roland Hazard's story, Bill uses many words and phrases to refer to a spiritual awakening, but they all essentially mean the same thing. We can whittle it down to one word, and that word is change. He lists huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes are suddenly cast to one side. Completely new set of conceptions and motives. An emotional rearrangement. It also refers us to the spiritual experience in Appendix 2. That's on page 567. And we see more words and phrasing, phrases describing that spiritual awakening or the word change. We see personality changes, revolutionary changes, vast change in feeling and outlook, transformation, profound alteration. So how do we experience a spiritual awakening? How do we rock it into the fourth dimension? Well, for me, I need to ask myself, how free do I want to be? And then I have to say, how willing am I? And that means we have to get honest. And it means we also have to understand where we came from. So to give you a little context, I'll share a little bit about my history. My life began with tragedy. I was sexually abused by my father when I was two years old. And at two and a half, I was testifying against my father in court. And that led to um, my mother and I being on our own. My mom didn't want him to um, visit me at all. So she traded no visitation for no child support. So we grew up really, really poor. Um, We didn't have many things. We didn't have a lot of food. Um, But ironically, my mother was 400 pounds for most of my life. And I watched her eat. And I watched her finish food so fast. And I learned that I had to eat the food faster in order to get any, because if I didn't, it would all be gone. And I remember like going trick-or-treating and I would bring home all this Halloween candy. And one year I um, like spread it out on the top of my TV and I categorized it, you know, these are the fruity kinds and these are the chocolatey kinds and I had it all laid out and I went to bed and in the morning I was like, it looks like there there's less candy. And then that second morning I woke up 
I think there's less candy in that third morning. Yeah, there's definitely less candy. And my mother was coming in, of course, and, and she was, you know, eating my candy while I was sleeping. And I would go to relatives' houses um, who had a little more money than we did, and they would have cookies, you know, and I'd take eight or nine Oreos and I'd run upstairs into my aunt's apartment and I would eat them so fast and I, I was hiding them. And I was like seven or eight years old. And I learned how to eat that way, you know, and I would put um, like cream in my cereal instead of milk and I would hide that from my grandmother, you know, it's her cream for her coffee. But I used it for my cereal. And I was, I was already behaving like this at seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And as I got older, weight started kind of piling on. And, and thank God for sports because it kind of evened, evened my body out a little bit. But I developed really early. You know, I was 12 years old and I had a 25-year-old woman's body. I had, you know, a chest and I had, you know, a backside and, um, you know, the, the boys were all talking to me. But at the same time, they were making fun of me. And when I looked at the girls in my grade, they were like little stick figures. Um, and here I was, this voluptuous woman. So I felt really out of place. And as I was growing up, um, you know, I started feeling pretty bad about myself. And it, and it seemed I was going into a depression. And my mother had put me into therapy when I was two years old. She wanted to make sure that I was supported because of everything that happened when I was younger. And... Um, you know, she said to my therapist at the time, now I'm, now I'm a couple years out from graduating high school. And she said, you know, I think, I think Rebecca's depressed. And um, they hooked me up with a psychopharmacologist and he prescribed me an SSRI for the, for the depression. And within weeks, I was in a psychotic mania. And what happened is when you give SSRIs to someone who has bipolar disorder, it flips them into this psychotic state. And so I was out of control and I, um, you know, I was stealing clothes, like 30 articles of clothes at a time from clothing stores. And um, I was selling them to friends and I would use that money for food, gas, and, and drugs at the time. I got into drugs in high school. And, um, you know, they, they quickly realized that something was wrong and they hospitalized me. But in the hospital, we got no exercise. And in the hospital, I could order whatever food I wanted. And I literally gained 50 pounds in the two weeks that I was in that hospital. And life just slowed down for me. They, gave, they put me on medication that I was sleeping most of the day. And they had to modify my hours in high school. Um, and I barely graduated with the credits that I had. So when I went off to college, I, um, I was really into music all of those years. And I went to a prestigious um, music school in Boston. And when I got there, I was in charge. So I took myself off of all of my meds and I replaced it with street drugs. And drugs became my God and sex became my God and God was nowhere to be found. In fact, I would have thoughts, like my intuition would say, don't go out with this boy. Don't walk down that alley. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I thought that that voice was working against me. I was convinced that that voice was trying to trick me. And so my comfort in all of this was, of course, the food. It was something that I knew so well. And so I was gaining weight and gaining weight in college. And then when I graduated from grad school, I met my husband, and he was doing a particular diet where he had lost like 80 pounds, and he encouraged me to do it. And I lost a lot of weight. And um, I lost a lot of weight so much so that other men were looking at me, and I left him for another man. 
But that man happened to hate my body. And I went through four years of that man hating my body. And you know what? I ended up hating my body. And what happened was I started getting into the food again. And I gained all of my weight back and then some. And that got so hard for me that I, it was like a year that I was trying to break up with him. And I finally left him for another man who I'm actually with now. Um, And he was everything that those other men weren't. He's kind, he's stable, he's decent, but he loves junk food. And so when I moved down here to Maryland and I saw that he had all this junk food in the house and he wasn't saying anything to me when I was eating it, there were no rules. You know, there were no rules with food. And I was out of control. I gained even more weight and it was sugar all day, every day. And I would go, you know, I would be at work and I would, um, you know, be on the sugar throughout the day and then it would be like 8 o'clock at night and I hadn't eaten dinner and I would justify, well, I'm going to have to get food and I'm going to have to get that food fast. So I would go to a fast food place and I would order two meals because one wasn't enough. And I would get to the drive through window and I would be on my phone and I would say, yeah, honey, it's, it's coming now. Mommy's almost home. And they'd pass me the food. I, I didn't have a son. There was no one else on that line. That food was for me. And I went into that dark parking lot and I ate both of those meals. And then I trashed the evidence. And I would come home and my boyfriend would say, did you have dinner? And out of guilt and shame, I would say no. I couldn't bring myself to say yes, because then he would ask, oh, what did you have? And I couldn't go down that line of questioning. Even though his questioning was innocent, for me, it was torture. It was just easier to say no, and then I'd eat a third meal. And so I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror at this point. I couldn't be, um, you know, undressed in front of my boyfriend. I felt so ashamed. And I was at the point where I had to, like, thrust myself out of bed two, three times to get the momentum just so I could get my feet on the floor. And my bathroom is on the second floor of my house. And I would be on the first floor maybe watching TV in some kind of food coma. And I would wait maybe an hour, maybe two hours, maybe three hours just to go to the bathroom because I didn't want to do the stairs. I was so out of control that I had to do something. And I thought, okay, well, self-knowledge is surely the answer. I'll just try something new again. And, um, you know, even though I had tried everything else, I thought something new would do it for me. So I looked up old diets that used to that used to work, but I would work them in a new way, or I'd look up new diets that I haven't tried yet, or I'd look up, you know, what is it what would it be to just get liposuction on my stomach? You know, or what what if I got a breast reduction? You know, that would take off maybe seven, eight pounds. And, you know, I if I grocery shopped on a particular day and then portioned everything out, you know, if I put the gym schedule in my phone. And the thing is is that all of this is so exhausting. And still none of it worked. I mean, I'm sure we've all tried things. We've tried it all. And none of it was working for us. And it didn't work for me because I was a compulsive overeater and I hadn't gotten to the root of what my problem was. And so I'm still trying all this stuff and I see the answer to all of my dreams. A popular TV show was casting in my area. And this was surely the way that I was going to lose all my weight and I would be a star in front of the entire world. So what did I do? I ate more than I have ever eaten in my entire life. 
because I knew I needed to lose at least 100 pounds to even be considered for this TV show. And I made the video and I submitted it. And you know what? I was rejected. And now at this point, I'm 255 pounds. And I'm miserable. I'm so desperate. And again, I see something else that's going to help me. In the local paper, I see this class for a local weight loss competition. Well, if I couldn't do it in front of the world, I can at least do it locally, right? So I enrolled in the class, and the class was actually not what I expected. I ended up taking 40 hours of this nutrition class, and I learned all about real foods and why processed foods are truly deadly. And now I have it. Now I had the self-knowledge, you know, and I did well for a while. I maybe lost like 20 pounds or something. But life crept in, and I couldn't white-knuckle it anymore. And today I know it was the obsession that was taking over. And it just took one bite before I knew it, and I was back in the food. With all of that self-knowledge, with everything that I had learned, it didn't matter. I was back in the food. And one day... Um, I, I work for an accounting firm, and one of my partners uh, needed me to bring him something on the weekend. So I went to his house, and I dropped it off. And as I was coming back, there's, uh, there was this froyo shop um, right before you get on the highway. And I stopped, and I, of course, got the biggest size cup that they had, and I piled it with the frozen yogurt, and then I piled it with all of the candy and everything else that they have that you can put on it, the sauces, everything. And I went in my car, and I sat in my car, and I think I ate the entire thing. I can't remember. But as a compulsive overeater, I would bet money that I ate the entire thing. And, you know, I had just moved to Maryland shortly before that, and I thought I knew my way back to my house. But I ended up going the wrong direction, and I realized it. And I took this exit off thinking that I could just, you know, go around and, and come back the other way. But this particular exit in Maryland takes you about 20 miles before you even have an outlet. And so here I am, and at first I'm like, okay, there's got to be an exit, there's got to be an exit, and as I'm going, 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 there's no exit. And then I see a sign that says no, no exit until Baltimore. And my house is 30 miles south of Baltimore. And so I'm on this road, and the sugar is starting to, like, rev up. And now I'm getting mad, and now I feel trapped. I feel like I, I can't get out of the car. I feel like I'm trapped in the car. I feel like I'm trapped on this road. And I start yelling at the top of my lungs to the point of where I'm losing my voice, and I start pounding on my steering wheel, and tears are just everywhere. And I'm, I'm, I start to hit myself. I'm hitting myself. I'm hitting myself, and I'm screaming. And, like, I look to my left, and other cars are, like, appalled looking at me. They're concerned. And I finally get to the toll booth at the end of this 20-mile stretch. And the, the woman looks at me, and she was terrified. And I was like, I'm on this road, and I don't know, and I don't know how to get back, and I don't have any money, and this and that. And she was just like, okay, um, here's like a little free pass ticket. Just go around this way and, and hand it to the toll person and, you know, get home safely. I was like totally, totally out of control. And that's when it hit me that I did not want to be that person anymore. I hated that person. And, you know, how could someone so together with my job and so together with certain areas in my life be so out of control? You know, and I, after that, I took this two-week vacation. It was, it was approaching summer and um, I had scheduled this two-week vacation and I knew I needed to figure things out. 
And Overeaters Anonymous was a household name in my family, but no one ever went. My mom tried liquid diets, and I would go to her to these classes with her, and she was a Weight Watchers dietitianer when, you know, when I was little and stuff like that. Her weight fluctuated up and down, and like I said, she was 400 pounds for most of my life, you know, but she couldn't fly on a plane without buying two seats. And so I put my pride aside, and I looked up away in my area, and when I first came in, the fellowship was wonderful. They, they welcomed me right in, and I lost about 50 pounds until I crashed and burned one day, and I realized that what I was doing was really dieting with group support. And, um, you know, I didn't think the steps were for me. I saw them on the wall, but it wasn't, it wasn't resonating. You know, it wasn't, I, was, I, I was in therapy since I was two years old. I don't need those steps. And I don't think it was out of ego. I just think it was, like, I just think it wasn't clicking. And when I admitted that I had crashed and burned in this meeting one day, a woman came up to me um, who's very straightforward, and she's one of my good friends today, um, and she said, why don't you try working the steps? And that's when my resentment against her built. Um, and, you know, I, but I thought about it, and I was like, I've tried everything else, and nothing else is working. So I got a sponsor, and that sponsor was into the 12 and 12 in the workbook. So I took step one, and for me, that was relatively easy. I knew I had the problem at this point. But steps two and three were a struggle for me. I mean, I came in, and I couldn't even say the word God. I was Jewish, um, and I made my bat mitzvah, but I had no idea what Hebrew meant, and therefore I had no connection to God whatsoever. You know, at this point, I believed in the universe, and I believed in the law of attraction. I believed in the balance of math and energy. Um, and the workbook questions actually did help me uh, to soften the concept of God to the point of where I could start defining that God for myself. And, um, you know, in step four, I got to choose my method. You know, my sponsor had a lot of sponsees, and she has a demanding job, and I felt like, you know, I really couldn't um, ask her for much. So I didn't talk to her every day, and I was just kind of like going through a chapter. I'd call her. I'd say, okay, I finished the chapter. She'd say, great, you're on the next step. So when I got to step four, I got to choose my method. So I decided that I would answer all the questions in step four in the 12 and 12, and there's like 140 questions. But the problem with that was that I relived everything. But at the time, I didn't know there was a better way. I didn't know about the big book yet. And so I sat with my sponsor for step five in a restaurant, and I chose the hard ones, you know. And the thing was is I wasn't sure if I was really trusting this person. Um, and I, you know, I felt, I, I disclosed some things that I really felt uncomfortable about. Um, and so when I got to step six, I, I couldn't let go of certain character defects. I didn't know how to do that. And I didn't really want to. There were things that I didn't want to let go, go of, and I got to a standstill. And God is so good because at that time, he brought a vision for you into my life. And I began listening, and I heard the word recovered for the first time. What does recovered mean? You know, well, on the title page of the big book, the title page, the first page, we see the word recovered. It's Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And this is really where my journey of recovery began. And I listened every day to a vision for you, and I listened until it sank in. And I listen to what this disease is, the fact that I have it, and it doesn't have to rule my life anymore. And I got a big book sponsor, and I started over at step one. It was imperative that I did that because I must follow directions 
in the big book from the beginning. So in the preface, you know, it's where we begin to first identify. It says, yes, that happened to me. Or most important, yes, I believe this program can work for me too. And then in the forward, it tells us the purpose and it gives us hope. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are many thousands of men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. And it goes on to say, yet it is our great hope that all those who have as yet found no answer may begin to find one in the pages of this book and will presently join us on the high road to a new freedom. I mean, if that isn't hope right there. So the thing is, is that the 40 hours of nutrition, that self-knowledge were not wasted. You know, before beginning with my new sponsor, I had to put the food down. And the food, um, that food knowledge can be a tool. But for me, the tools weren't enough because they're never a solution. They only help us in our journey. And I really needed God to help me. You know, my problem was that I didn't have God. And it was only so long that I could go without white knuckling it. So, you know, when I work with a sponsee now or others that need help getting the food down, I do a food inventory with them. And I, I look at their food, and we've heard the red, yellow, and green light foods before. And I, and I leverage that to some extent. But what I do is I have them break it out. For the last year, what have you been eating? You know, what are you really out of control with? Red. What's tricky? What's confusing you? What do you play games with? Yellow. What do you believe you're abstinent with? Green. But I have them look up the nutrition information and the ingredients of every single line item that they write down. And what that does is it helps us face our food. It's not automatic pilot just going in our mouth anymore. We're facing the food. We're seeing what's in it. And we can see patterns. If all of my red light foods have sugar in them and they're all processed foods and they all, most of them have flour in them and they mostly have unhealthy oil, well, I can deduce that maybe I have problems with those ingredients. And if I look at my yellow list and there are foods that include those ingredients, maybe I can say, these are, I'm allergic to these as well. And when I look at my green foods, if there's a few foods in there that have those allergic ingredients, well, maybe, I, maybe they're not abstinent. Maybe I need to move those. And so, you know, I get them to a point where we find an abstinent list and that abstinent list becomes their food plan. And I talk to them about, you know, different, different meals that they can make off of that food so that they have variety and they feel supported. And I offer them um, food sponsoring where they have to send me their food the night before and then simply follow it the next day. Now, this is not OA approved, but the beauty of OA is that we get to create our own food plans. We get to customize it for ourselves. And I found that this is a great way to do that. I've had such success doing this with people. People are either recovered today or on their way to recovery. And so when we eat these real foods, we create this new relative scale, right? If you picture a ruler, you know, inch one is at the bottom and inch 12 is at the top and we're holding it vertically. Well, when we were eating the Doritos and the pies and the chips and the cake, all of that stuff for me was at, you know, inch 12. And broccoli was at like inch one or two. And what happens is when we remove these foods, our taste buds change and they change within days. And so that 12-inch scale now maybe go down to maybe it goes down to like three or four inches. And that broccoli that was a two or three is exciting now. And we don't have to put Velveeta cheese on it to enjoy it. 
we can really enjoy the taste of our food. And things that were sweet like cake, now we find sweetness in a strawberry, let's say. So we learn all about this in the doctor's opinion. We learn about the allergy and the obsession. We learn about the cycle of addiction. You know, we learn about entire abstinence. It says four times in the doctor's opinion, we must have entire abstinence. We cannot have our allergic foods. You know, and I learned, I leverage special editions um, that are on a vision for you to learn more about this. They're such a great resource. It really hit home when I listened to certain, certain recordings. And now we begin our journey through the steps. Now that the food is down, we will clear a pathway and we'll rock it to the fourth dimension. So we can look at this in two ways. We can look at it in dimensions and we can look at it in groupings of steps. So if we take dimension one, it's steps one, two, and three. It's our spiritual dimension. So we ask ourselves, what does it mean to be 100% powerless? Well, first of all, it's scary. And we feel alone and we feel hopeless. You know, and I, for me, I was like, no one can do this better than me. No one can juggle all the things that, that's going on in my life. Like, how am I going to let all this go and just, and just, you know, trust that God is going to take over? I don't really have a relationship with God. I don't, I don't, I don't trust yet. But we're at the point of complete deflation at this point. You know, we're at the first tenant in the Oxford tenants, page 263. Bill based these tenants, uh, our steps on these tenants. And it's really a great place to be, you know. Maybe not for me because I'm living it and it feels awful. But definitely from a sponsor point of view, when I'm caring for someone, taking step one, you know, it's, it's a beautiful place for that sponsee to be. You know, we need to be beaten down by that food and we need to be beaten down perhaps by life to really be ready because we're beyond human aid and only a power greater than us can give us that power that we lack. And this is why we need spiritual reliance, why we have to build a spiritual foundation. So you may have come in with religion or a religious understanding, but here we have this opportunity to find and, and create our own conception of a personal higher power. And how cool is that? You know, if we think about the control we've had in our lives, we've had control over food, we've had control over people, over situations. And think about the control that's been imposed on us, our parents, bosses, you know, society's rules. And now we get to decide who our higher power is, what freedom that is. So how do we do that? Well, the big book walks us through it, and our sponsors walk us through it. And we can begin this connection with a higher power. You know, step two is three and a half chapters long. Why? Well, step two is critical. Our relationship with God is so personal. It's so intimate. And it's based on trust. And when we talk about steps two and three, we are talking about belief and faith. And when we have belief and faith, you know, in step two, we believe that something greater is out there for us. In step three, we start putting our trust and faith in that something. You know, and in order to take step three, we have to define and we have to connect to our higher power. We have to take just the leap of faith. You know, when it says make a, make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, it doesn't mean we have to snap our fingers and all of a sudden we throw everything up and he's got our will in our life. That's just what the rest of the steps are for. You know, it's not something we have to do immediately. 
And I'll give you an analogy that I tell my sponsees. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, the whole movie builds up to this, the end where, you know, his father has uh, been wounded. And if um, Indiana Jones doesn't get this uh, magical, um, you know, this, this um, water of life, whatever they call it, you know, he's going to die. So Indiana Jones has to go through these three trials. You know, the first one, he has to kneel before God before this blade slices his head off. And then the second one, he has to spell God's name as he steps on the letters, um, you know, on, this, on, on the ground. And we see him make a mistake at one point, and we see how endless this drop is. I mean, you can't even see the bottom of this gorge. And then the third one, he comes to this little opening in this, in this wall. It's like this small crevice. And across from him, he can see another opening. But, but it's so far across, there's no way he could, like, run and jump and make it. And so he stands there, and um, he's looking at his father's notes, and it says, a leap of faith from the lion's head. And so you see on his face him just understand that he can't do this himself, that he needs a power greater than himself. And you almost can see on his face where he, t- he makes that decision that he's going to just trust. And he's standing there right at the edge, and he puts one foot out, and he shifts his weight from the foot he's standing on onto the foot that's out, and he has that foot come down. And lo and behold, there is a pathway there, and the camera shifts. And what we couldn't see before from that other vantage point, we see now that there was a bridge there the whole entire time. There was something supporting him to the other side. We just couldn't see it. It was blending into the rocks and the walls and everything like that. So he walks across and and he makes it to the other side, you know, and it just takes that little bit of willingness to even let go just a little, to change our thinking just a little bit more, to be open to suggestion just a little bit more, to be kinder to ourselves, to be honest just a little bit more, and to ultimately trust a little more. And step two is imperative for traveling through these action steps. We cannot take three unless we are grounded in two. And I illustrate to my sponsees what I strive for every day. My connection with God ranges from a one to a ten, but it at least needs to be a one. And what that means is I need to feel God around me or in me or working through me. Because if I feel a disconnect, I need to correct it right away. And that uncomfortability of that disconnect is more apparent to me now today. Before, before I did the steps, it was a struggle just to try to connect. Now it's it's about if I feel that disconnect, if I've done something immoral and I need to correct it, I do do, do a step 10 if I need to. I do whatever it takes to get myself connected again. And before I have sponsees take step three, they must be able to relate to this. You know, I give them a job description when they are on step two. And I ask them to make bullet points of what they need in a higher power, whether it's help with food, whether it's help with their life. And before we take step three, they must write a personalized prayer for each bullet point. You know, maybe they say, give me the direction with making positive choices in my life. That's the bullet point. And maybe they write a prayer, God, I trust that you will guide me when making decisions today. I ask that you slow down time and help me realize there is a space to pray, and space to ask you for guidance before acting. Please remind me of that today. I love you. And now the sponsee is equipped with personalized prayers that help them connect to their personal higher power. 
and they're ready for the next dimension. Dimension two is our mental dimension. It's steps four through seven. And for me, steps four through seven are all about character defects. This, this might change over time. I might see steps four through seven differently, but today I see it being all about character defects. And it's imperative that God carry us through each one of these steps. And step four is where we clean house. You know, we put on our gloves, we get out our Swiffer, we get our industrial-sized box of trash bags. And it's such an awesome step. You know, it's branded as the one that can make or break us, you know, that where we go through hell. You know, it's the end of the journey, so F it, I'm not doing any more of these steps. But that's not what it is, and that's not what it has to be at all. In the, in the big book, Bill lays it out for us so easily. He says, you know, if I gave you an analogy, it's like a high school class schedule. It's simply French with Mr. White, room 101 on Monday. Pre-cal with Mr. Brown, room 201 Tuesday. Gym with Mr. Green, field house on Thursday. You know, it's not French class where I sat next to this boy who I obsessed about for years and walked six miles just to pass his house twice so I could spy on him and obsess about him and, you know, only to come back into school and have him make fun of me and my heart to be cr- No, it's not that. It's not that. We don't have to relive it. We simply get it down on paper. We go column by column. We don't go across because we don't want to relive these experiences again. We do the person, place, institution for resentment, like if this is resentment, person, place, institution. Next column, the cause. Next column, it affects my self-esteem, personal relationships, security, and so on. Fears. What am I fearful of? Oh, I'm fearful of. Why do I have the fear? It affects my sex conduct. Whom did I harm? What did I do? It affects my harms other than sexual. Who did I hurt? What did I do? It affects my, and it's as simple as that. And I tell my sponsees to do 60 a day. And they say, how many? And I say, do you want to be on step four forever? Do you want to stall out? 60 a day, please. And they must pause in between each column and each sheet and talk with me because sometimes there's reading in the book that must be done in between the different sheets that they're doing. And they must group and highlight these. In preparation for step five, they must identify any person, place, or institution that's on there multiple times on multiple sheets because we only process each one once. We're not reliving this more than once. And if there are similar topics or issues that we need to process, we need to group them together. For instance, you know, if there were four girls that made fun of me, I would process them together as one resentment, addressing each four girls but processing it together. And then also in preparation for six and seven, I asked my sponsees to make a list of defects and assets on the same page with a line down the middle. And now we're ready for step five. And we do this with, with a sponsor because we need to, you know, foster honesty. We need to support them through the really hard stuff because this stuff is real. This is our life. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of things that are happening that we need to, um, that we need to realize this, this is real life. This affects us. It affects our emotions. It affects everything. So, you know, we also have to offer suggestions when the sponsee is going to these turnarounds when they get blocked or stuck. And we customize it to the sponsee, meaning each sponsee is going to have their past settle in a different place. For some people, it's their resentment. That's their number one offender. For other people, it's their fears that's really holding them back. And I try to assess where these blockages mostly lie and give them time to let go of those. You know, this is my favorite step as a sponsor. 
It's such a privilege. It's a privilege to watch my sponsees transform right before my eyes. And I've laughed with them and I've cried with them. And God speaks directly through me when we are doing these turnarounds. I am most connected when I'm doing step five with a sponsee. And if you noticed in step four, I didn't say that we did column four because I choose to do column four in real time. And I find that this is extremely effective. You know, it's where we say, where was I selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and fearful? Where was I inconsiderate? And so when I do this process with them, you know, when I begin the session, I have them invite God in. And then I have the sponsee tell me the person, place, or institution. Let's say we're doing resentment. And then I have the sponsee go to the bottom of 66 and top of 67, and I have them say the sick man prayer. And after they've done this for a while, they don't have to look in the book anymore, and they can say their own variation. And I have them tell me succinctly what the resentment is. And when I have enough context, they begin the turnaround. Where was I selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, fearful, inconsiderate? And they answer each one of those questions. And through this process, the resentment, I'm watching it get lifted. I can see it in their face. I can hear it in their voice. Their body relaxes. And then I ask them, what would God want for you now? And then the sponsee prays for the person. And, you know, it's, it's such a beautiful process. And, and for fears, it's slightly different. We do this turnaround, but I find that in, when we do the fears, we have to borrow what we've done in step three. We have to make a decision. And if we can turn our will and our life over, that means turning the fear over as well. My ex-boyfriend's father had bed bugs, and um, it was a nightmare, and I was so terrified. And when I did my inventory on my fears, I had bed bugs down on there because I was checking my bed every single night for these bed bugs. And when I processed my fear, I made a decision when I was on that line item. I made a decision that I wasn't going to do that anymore, that if someday I got bed bugs, I would deal with it and God would help me deal with it. But I was not going to live in that fear anymore. And so it's like magic. This is all like magic. I mean, I can't explain it. Um, but I really feel like the Oxford Group and Bill W. Um, and Bob, they discovered the key to life. You know, somehow this process, this turnaround process, lets the actions of our character defects go. Our resentments, our fears, our sexual harms, our other harms, they are all let go in this process. You know, it's like we got that Swiffer out, that Swiffer has gone to work, and now our insides are like sparkling and clean. And the one thing I do want to point out about this process when we're on step five is sometimes I get asked, well, how do I process something that I didn't have a part in? And this applied to me directly. I mentioned that my father sexually abused me when I was two. I had no responsibility in that. So what I say for cases such as this is to leverage, you know, the bookend of this turnaround. You know, we invite God in. And then we pray using that sick man prayer. And we say it over and over and over again until we detach that action from the person. We detach that resentment. And we say it until God lifts it. And then we ask, what would God want for me now? We don't have to live in that anymore. And once we've processed all four categories, we can follow direction in the big book um, and the bottom of page 75 where we rest an hour. You know, and we review those first five steps. Were we thorough enough? Then it says we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last. Well, why does that say that here? Because after that hour, we're going to do six and seven. 
And after six and seven, in my opinion, we are recovered. And six is a parallel to step two. You know, step two, we're preparing for God's foundation and connection. In three, we implement that trust. In step six, we're prepping for our spiritual awakening. And in seven, we quiet the character defects and we acknowledge our assets. The word remove does not mean to discard. Like our disease, we will never get rid of our character defects. The word remove means to distance. And we can distance ourselves from our character defects. And that gives us room to embrace our assets. And I have my sponsees take out their defects and assets list and we process them. And I have them say prayers. God, I am willing to have you remove my perfectionism. And we go right down the list with all all the defects. And we do the assets. God, I am willing to have you work through my generosity. This preps us for taking step seven. And similarly, similarly to step six prayers, I have them ask God to release the character defects and to highlight their assets. God, for today, I humbly ask you to remove my perfectionism. God, for today, I humbly ask you to work through my generosity. And then we say the seventh step prayer. And then I take their hands and I look into their eyes and usually I'm crying at this point and I tell them that they're recovered. Now, why am I telling that if they have not finished the steps? Well, I believe our character defects are the root of why we need a spiritual awakening or a psychic change. When God removes them, we are the person he intended us to be. He can now work through our assets. And this brings us to dimension three, steps eight and nine. It's the physical dimension. You know, we must be reorganized in order to do these steps. And therefore, this reinforces why we can call ourselves recovered. It's the physical dimension. We are changed. You know, as compulsive overeaters, we can kind of take this literally. We may have lost weight. For me, I lost 107 pounds in the last 20 months. Like Ebby, I'm fresh-skinned and glowing. But this is mainly the physical dimension because it's about relationships. We repair relationships. We make new ones. We redefine boundaries. We see the world and its people differently, and we're not judging people anymore. We've transformed all around, and therefore we've transformed the world around us. And now, after all this hard work, we've been in our little cocoon, and we're ready to emerge as this beautiful butterfly. We've grounded ourselves in dimension one with our creator. We've cleared a pathway in dimensions two and three, and we've rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence. And dimension four is freedom. It's where we live in steps 10, 11, and 12. But we do not get to rest on our laurels. It's a different kind of hard work. When my sponsees get to 10 and 11, they've already been doing a form of this from the day we started together. They needed a design for living the whole time. Um, And I assigned them right from the beginning, pages 84 through 88. And on 86, there's a step 11 inventory that, a bit, that, that they do every single night, and they send it to me every night. And it's been prepping them for that step five the whole time. The difference between the inventory they were doing on 86 and now that they're at step 10 is that they're recovered now. And they're, they're, they've practiced processing these resentments and fears, and they're, they have a shifted thinking through this reorganization. And they understand life's disruptions, that it doesn't affect them in the same way that it did when they were in the food. 
ideally we should be processing these resentments automatically. For instance, like a car cuts us off, right? And instead of beeping and accelerating on their bumper, instead of, you know, FUing all over the place and flipping the finger as we speed by, we're now connected with a God conscious type of thinking. We almost already, we can anticipate the movements of the car, cars around us and we're locked into God's flow. At the bottom of 85, it says, much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. If we have carefully followed directions, we have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense, but we must go further, and that means more action. So the action is saying that person is spiritually sick. Again, going back to our uh, fifth-step turnaround, we do not necessarily have to process the entire turnaround now because we can just ask ourselves, what would God want for me? And we say, they must be in a rush. Let them get there safely. And it's done. We're on with our day. And God carries us through this. He helps us release it swiftly. We are able to let it go at once. When we have larger matters going on, then we can slow it down again and do each piece of that step five turnaround. And we, we, it's, it's a step 10 that we're doing, but we borrow from that, that slower pace. And we use the fellowship of recovered people to do this formal step 10. And the step 11 inventory is extremely important because we let everything go in our day, but anything that we have not been able to process, we now let go in that inventory. We ask God to remove everything before we fall asleep so he can reorganize us again overnight. And in the morning, we're clear, and our first thoughts are of God. You know, if they're not of God, I personally need to pray to the point of where God is first and foremost on my mind, and I'm ready to do God's will. So in the morning, I take quiet time to talk and to listen to God. I think of those I wish happiness upon and I wish health for. And I ask God to provide opportunities of service. There's one homeless man that I see almost every morning, and I ask God when I'm at a particular traffic light to stop me at that traffic light so that, so that person can come over and I can give them a dollar. And when I, I knew that I was recovered when I stopped telling people the good deeds that I would do. And I'm sharing this with you today for illustration, but I've never told anyone that before. But I do. I, I wish that, he's, that, that, light, that that light stops. And then I get to connect with him because I see God within him. And when I look in his eyes, I feel God. And it starts my morning off just in this most incredible way. And that brings us to step 12 where we're helping other people. And step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening, as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. But what I really see jumping out in that is practice carrying the spiritual awakening. And this is the most amazing part of my life. It's helping people in this fellowship. Giving up my time to others was on my fears list. I did not want to do that. And I processed it. And when I recovered, now it's the most amazing part of my life. And God works through me. And he talks through me. And that feeling is just so amazing. It is such a privilege. And I'm committed to bringing others through this big book. I witnessed the miracle of others transforming right before my eyes. And so what is my life like now? You know, I can sum it up with with the promises on 83 and 84. 
If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Well, I watch my sponsees become reorganized in step five, and in six and seven, they're identifying their character defects and their assets, and they're distancing themselves from their, from their defects and embracing their assets. That's why I can call them recovered at that point. We're amazed before we're halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. When I'm not focusing on everything that's wrong and I don't have cupcake goggles on, life is amazing and God shows us miracles everywhere. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Well, I've sorted through my past. I've processed it. I did that in four and five. I've let it go. I faced it, so there's nothing to shut the door on anymore. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. We just have God's light filling us now. Like Ebby on page nine, he's fresh-skinned and glowing. And God's light is peace. You know, when we start this program, it's like maybe God's light is like coming into our toes and our ankles, and then it comes into our shins, and then we get into the action steps, and it starts filling up our core. And then we get into steps eight and nine, and now it's filling up our chest and our mind. And by the time we're done, it's coming out the strands of our hair. You know, God, we've cleared everything away so that God can come in and fill us again. You know, and no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we see how our experience can benefit others. We're not ashamed of the things we've done anymore because we've faced them. Many of us have done the same thing. We can have a light laugh about eating out of a trash barrel. Now, that's a serious matter, but when someone connects to your story, that's where the hope begins, you know, and Bill didn't write this for compulsive overeaters, so the word scale is not, you know, he wasn't being literal about that, but if we look at it that way, I lost 107 pounds. I've gone from a size 24 to an 8, and losing the weight came with its own challenges, and a secondary addiction came up that I needed to work through, but the solution is the same. The solution is God. So I can now enjoy the weight that I've lost. I don't have to fear being a young, attractive, thin woman and the bad choices that I could make. I have God with me in every decision, and I trust that he wants the best for me. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Well, I feel so useful today. When I highlighted my assets, God took over, and he's putting me to work. I started a big, a big book meeting with a few fellow visionaries. I work with sponsees, food sponsees. I do food inventories with people to help them get the food down so they can begin the steps and work with a big book sponsor. I'm chair of an intergroup. I'm chair of one of my region's committees. I'm a board member for a nonprofit that houses anonymous meetings. I mean, who is this person? I went from getting up, going to work, putting myself in a food coma, repeat, every day. But now I'm the person that God wants me to be. I've lost interest in the selfish things, and I've gained interest in my fellows. My self-seeking has slipped away. Our whole new attitude and outlook upon life will change. I see the world so differently now. I get to see God's design every day. It is so beautiful. It's better than any design that I could ever create. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. I was promoted twice this year. I was put on a career path that is challenging and seems plush with forward growth and opportunity. I mean, I was getting in the way for so long. And when I finally just let go and I worked this, this program, promoted twice in one year. 
That is truly amazing and such a gift. We will intuitively know how to handle situations with juices that baffle us. We know how to handle them because there's space between occurrence and reaction. And in that space is God. When we have God guiding us in our decision, it's his plan, not ours. It's his will, not our self-will. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. There was no way I could find relief from the obsession over the food. I tried over and over to the point of insanity. And when I began the steps in the big book, on my knees, God was right there. It took me some time to realize it, but his love is so apparent today. And out of respect for him, I keep in fit spiritual condition as gratitude back for his investment in me. That includes taking care of my bipolar disorder, which I thought could never be under control. But for over 10 years, I've been stable. And when I put the sugar down and when I started working this program, I have been more balanced than I ever have been in my entire life. God is doing that for me. But I need to care for myself in order to receive these gifts back from God. And that means working this program. So, you know, step 10, um, I'm sorry, the 10th step prayers. And we have, um, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. And we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And this is conditional. But I began with willingness and I must remember every day that I'm willing to do what it takes to remain recovered one day at a time. So if we recap our dimensions, we grounded in dimension one. Becca, star one to unmute. Hi, Leah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. We are grounded in dimension one, steps one, two, and three. We cleared a path in dimension two and three, steps four through nine. We rocketed into a fourth dimension, leaving us in steps 10, 11, and 12. Well, science defines uh, the fourth dimension as space and time. We can say that we've rocketed through the space we've cleared into the present time. We no longer are reliving the past. We no longer worry about the future. We are here in this moment, one day at a time, with God. We went from bondage to freedom through a journey of spiritual awakening. So this is out there just waiting for you. If you have the big book in front of you, hold it in your hands. It's a winning lottery ticket. You just have to cash it in. The big book provides us all the direction we need but it's up to us to do the work. You know, the big book tells us to do this at once. 14 times in the first 164 pages, it says at once. This is a progressive disease, and it will never get better using our own self-will. We are beyond human aid. 
We need a higher power to recover from this hopeless state of mind and body. So if you have not started or if you are on your way but you're struggling, start and keep going. Find what you need and search it out. If you are questioning your sponsor, get a new one. If you don't have the food down, find someone who can help you identify your allergies. If you want this so badly that you swear off every day, just do the work. Surrender. I promise if you work this program, you will be rocketed to the fourth dimension. You will go from bondage to freedom. And I wish that upon you. May you find your personal higher power to help you become the person you are meant to be. Leia, thank you so much for this opportunity, and I pass. Thank you, Becca, very much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us this morning. Thank you for a message which was carried with such thoroughness, inspiration, and hope. We thank you for your service. Becca W.'s contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. Now we're going to open the floor for questions you might have for Becca. And you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Hi, uh, this is Kathy Kay from Boston. Hi, Kathy. One moment. Let me see if anybody else is on the line right now with questions. Anyone else? This is Jean from Boston. Hi. Okay. Anyone else? Star 1 to unmute. Hi, it's Naomi. Could I ask a question, please? And Naomi, you'll be third in line. Great. Thank Let's you. start with Kay, Kathy Kay. Thank you, Leah, for your service. And thank you so much, Becca. I really got a tremendous amount out of your share. I appreciated the detail with which you went through how you work with your sponsees. And I have a question about that um, related to the Step 4 inventory. Uh, I have found over the years that I've been sponsoring that um, I refine that process every time, sticking very closely to what's in the the book on step four. Um, but one thing you said, which I don't think is actually there, um, in at least I haven't found it, is you end the resentment inventory, those four questions, um, uh, with a statement, uh, something like, what would God have me do and be instead? I know that that is there at the end of the fear inventory and the sex conduct inventory. Was I right in hearing that you also asked that question in the resentment inventory? Thanks. Um, hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for your question. I do actually do that, and I know that um, some people have a – some people take the big book literally in the sense that they follow the exact directions. And um, I try to do that to the best of my ability, but I do find that when I'm doing the turnaround in five with my sponsees, it's really helpful to just have them finally shift out of yeah. self because it's important to reconnect back with God. When, we, when we're asking ourselves, where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, inconsiderate, and, and fearful, it's, it's an introspective study, and it can sometimes bring, bring us down because we're looking right. at the things that we've done wrong. So to then ask the question, 
what would God want for you now? It brings us out of that and it brings us back with that connection of God, lifts us out so that then we can be in a beautiful place to pray for that person. And I, I simply watch the resentment just blow the way. So it is, I have some loose in, in, uh, interpretation there, but I really do find that with the resentments as well, it's very helpful. Thank you, Kathy Kay, for the question. Jean, your turn. Jean, star one to unmute. Wait a minute. We hear you. Let's give Jean. Can you hear me now? Now, yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry, but I don't know what I was doing. I just um, wanted to thank you. I'm sitting here. I'm a lot older than you. I've been in in this program absent for 29 years, and um, you have me in tears. Um, I guess my question would be this. It's like, you know, my kids were molested by their father, and I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue. They never told me till they got older, long after he was out of my life. And um, so it's like, God bless your mom. That's all I have to say. And that I don't. that's not all I have to say. I want to ask you this. What's your relationship with your body now? Jean, thank you so much for the question. Um, it, it is a difficult subject, and um, it did take years of therapy um, for me to uh, wiggle out of the um, bondage that I felt of, from that violation. Um, but it really took the steps and doing step four and five to uh, let it go. And I can pray for my father today, and I, I do wish the best for him. Um, I understand that he is a very sick person. As far as it relates with my with my body, um, that that violation happened a really long time ago, and there are some subconscious things that come up for me that I have to process. And I I actually love therapy, and I use it in a way to further my life um, and to go after my goals and things that I want in my life. I use it as a tool. So if things like that come up, I I do use that venue to process things, but. Today, um, you know, I had a secondary addiction come up, and that was um, that was a sexual addiction, and I had to work through that because um, I realized that the same solution was God, and the same solution was the steps. So today, um, you know, it took me. There was a person that was in my life who was really um, an angel, and who um, who made me feel really wonderful about my body, and who complimented my body. Um, and made me feel beautiful. And in a lot of ways, I feel like God put that person in my life to um, to make me whole in that way. And I don't feel violated anymore. I do feel beautiful, and I have imperfections. But um, but I don't know. I I embraced what I have today, and I love the fact that the weight is off because I'm more mobile, um, and I feel more fully integrated today. So I just try to surround myself, you know, I, I have my current boyfriend, um, you know, is, is inexperienced in that way and it, it's still a struggle. So it's something that I'm working on, but I have to do a lot of personal work to, um, to love my body. And it's an ongoing thing that I'm probably going to have to do for the rest of my life, but 
it's something that um, I make a point to work with every day because if I just brush it under the rug, it's going to pile up again um, and I'm going to start feeling badly and maybe that violation will start sneaking in again. But it's something that I face head on. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Thanks so much, Jean. Thank you, Jean. Naomi, your turn. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for your service. Becca, you had me in tears. You know how much I love you. I do have a question besides this, <laughs> expressing my deep, deep feelings for you. Um, over what period of time do you work through the steps with a sponsee? Um, is there any any special, I don't mean a, a daily or weekly time that you speak with them, but um, the whole process, how long does it normally take that you uh, work your steps with your sponsee? Hi, Naomi. Um, thanks for the question. It's it's interesting because this is actually a little bit of a struggle for me sometimes. Um, I, you know, I I typically work with people, um, you know, the three times a week. So if you do the math, you know, it it turns out to be probably six months or less. It really depends on the sponsee. The sponsee is motivated and they're working hard, um, and it isn't much of a struggle. They can get through pretty quickly, but I never think of it in terms of time. I always think of it in terms of where are they. What do I need to do to support them? Are they ready to take the next step? Because if they're on step two and their connection isn't, um, isn't really strong, I'm not going to have them go to step three. I'm not going to just read through the book and let the book necessarily, the timing of reading the book dictate what steps they're on. If they're struggling with something, because if, if two isn't grounded and they take three and then they're on four and God is not guiding their pen as they're writing their inventory, they, can, they could fall apart or they could stall out. We need to have that connection with God in order to do those action steps because they're difficult. So really, it's, it comes down to the sponsee. For instance, I have one sponsee who we've been working on step five for a little while now. But as I mentioned in my talk, you know, um, resentments are her number one offender. And it's important to her to let go of them. So we try, we check in with each other and we try to find the balance between not, not making it like this perfect process but making sure it's thorough enough so that they're let go so that she never has to be back in the food again. So I guess my short answer is the sponsee and, and, and my instincts with, with God's guidance, we, we decide how fast. But I'm not, I'm not one of those people that just like goes through it in, in a month or two. Um, I, I, I make sure that it's thorough without perfectionism, if that makes sense. Thank you, Naomi. Anyone else with a question for yes, Becca? Yes, this is Amy. Amy. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Sharon H. in Colorado. Sharon H. Susie oh. in Fort Worth. And Susie. Tara okay. in Florida. Tara, is that you? That's me. Yes, okay. All right, let's start with Amy, please. Good morning. My name is Amy G. from Maryland. Uh, Becca, thank you so much for your share. Leah, thank you for your service. Uh, just a question. I really appreciate you talking about, you know, the food inventory, sometimes needing to go through that with a sponsee. I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that, because what I find is when I sponsor, 
um, if, if there's a trouble with the sponsee with slipping and things like that and they've told me their food is in order, quite often it seems like um, it's not. It's either a resentment or something to do with their food and it seems like that clarity that we as sponsors may assume, you know, clarity, that they have clarity if they tell us so, is not exactly, is not exactly the case. So I guess my question is when you do go through an inventory with someone, either it be a food inventory, it be in the beginning, uh, you know, when you're starting with them, or when you're having, you know, say the sponsee is having trouble with slips and relapses, could you elaborate what it is that you do there, please? Sure, Amy, thanks so much for the question. Um, I think it's really important to do that, and, and I kind of mentioned this when I got to the green, but I did say it pretty quickly. Um, oftentimes, people think they're abstinent, and what happens is they're working against themselves because unless they pick up a label, they don't realize that there are, um, that there are ingredients in the food that they're having uh, that they're allergic to. For instance, you know, some of them, I might, I might say, like this fancy says, I'm having trouble with food. Okay, well, what did you eat today for lunch? Well, I had a sandwich. Okay, well, what did you make that sandwich with? Well, I had Ezekiel bread which is on my abstinent list. I'm not allergic to anything in that. Okay. And I had turkey on it, and I had lettuce on it, and I had mayo. Okay. Well, have you ever looked at the label on, on a mayonnaise jar? No. Well, do you know that the second ingredient is sugar? Really? Yes. So they, it, unless you're looking at your food, you may not see that things are hiding in it. So when I do the thorough food inventory, I start with the red. And oftentimes, if you just look at it from a bird's eye view, you know, I have, I have all these different columns, right? So I, column A is the actual food, and I ask them to be very specific. And then column B through whatever I or something, B through K, is, you know, is there so the, the headers are sugar, white flour, um, unhealthy oil, healthy oil, wheat, carbohydrates, protein, salt, dairy, and, um, and is it processed? So they have to look everything up and they have to put an X in any of the cells that correspond to those um, column headers. And so when we look at it in a bird's eye view and there are X's all over the sugar column and there's X's all over the flour column and every single food is pretty much processed, we can, I walk them. It, sometimes it takes four hours. Most people it takes like two to three hours, but I go through every single line item. And when I'm on the red, I say, well, what pattern do you see here? Well, sugar, flour, unhealthy oil, and, um, and it's processed. And I say, have you ever had a bullseye candy? It's the candy that has the caramel with the white sugar center. And they say, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I say, what are the top three ingredients? It's sugar, flour, and unhealthy oil. Those are the only three ingredients in that. So for me, whenever I see a product that has those three ingredients, for me, I'm eating candy. And so I help them understand that they may be allergic to that. Now, I can't tell them they are. I have to say, you know, let's, it seems as though you may be. So if that's the case, are you willing to put it down for a week? And they say, yes, I'm willing to do that. Then we go to the yellows and we look at the yellows. And if there's anything that has sugar or any of those ingredients that we talked about, are you willing to put those down? Yes. And then we go, you know, and then I go line by line. And some foods we have to talk about. You know, if they're playing games with some foods, they're saying, you know, I really can't have salsa. Well, why can't you have salsa? Well, you know, I, I, I eat it with chips and, you know, I'm really out of control. Okay, well, do you think that maybe the salsa is the problem or perhaps the chips is the problem? Oh, well, maybe it's the chips. 
you know, and then we have to talk about the behavioral side. Are you going to associate salsa with chips or is it something that you could add to, you know, a piece of grilled chicken? So we have to talk through everything to make sure that, you know, it's falling in the right place because I don't need anything in yellow. It's either red or it's green. And when we get to the green, we look at everything in there too. And if it has ingredients that they're allergic to, that we believe they're allergic to, we need to move those to the red. So when they end up with their list, oftentimes it's just real food. It's meats, it's vegetables, it's fruits, it's nuts, it's um, you know healthy oils, um, and and they're eating real food. And my my feeling is that when you eat real food, it regulates your body. And that's what happened for me. The 107 pounds that I lost, I, I hate to admit this, but I didn't exercise one day. It was all the food that had me lose that weight. So we just whittle it down to things that, um, you know, that we feel the person is not allergic to. And then as we work together, if something's coming up for them, we might find something else they're allergic to, and we simply remove that and we see how they feel. And it's, it's all about them being in tune with their body and being in tune with their mind. Is it clouded when they eat something? Do they feel a physical something? Are they having obsessive thoughts after they eat something? And we just monitor that. So I hope that answers your question, Amy. Thank you, Amy, for the question. Sharon H., your turn. Good morning, Becca, and thank you so much for your uh, share. I just gained so much. And I just had one more question to ask you with what you just uh, answered for Amy. You had mentioned all the real foods. Uh, what about dairy? Does your food plan include dairy, like yogurt, as long as it's plain, and milk? Thank you so much, Sharon, for the question. My, my personal um, food plan does not include dairy, and it's mainly because I was never a big fan of it. I'm not like lactose intolerant or anything. I, I'm just not a big fan. I don't like how it feels when I eat it. So mine doesn't, but I have sponsees who they do have dairy in their, uh, in their diet. This is not a program about losing weight. The big book does not talk about losing weight, and I, I stand firm with that. But if I'm having a heart-to-heart -heart with a sponsee who's saying, you know, I'm not losing weight, dairy is one thing that can be removed as well as grains um, to help the weight loss process. But again, it's, it's not about that. Um, those are special case conversations that I have with people if it, if it comes to that point. Thanks for okay, that. thank you. And then the other question was regarding you mentioned about um, the 10th step. I do use that turnaround sheet and uh, answer those four questions. And thank you so much for what you shared. I'm going to change because mine sense some of what would good God have had you, what could have been done better. And the past is the past, but what can God do for you now? I really appreciate that. You did mention something about a 10th step because I use that same format for a 10th step. But at some point, I think you said, um, what do you just do the top line and then go down and ask God, what should I do now? Or do you look at those four um, you know, selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and fearful as well, and answer those. Um, okay, so there's two two ways to look at it, right? If I'm mm -hmm. if something happens in my day and someone says something to me, um, if I can, when I'm connected with God after I've done the steps and I'm recovered, oftentimes what happens is I do not necessarily have to ask those questions because I've been reorganized as a person, and therefore it happens automatically for me where I can let that go instantly. 
But okay. when I have something big that happens and I need to talk through it with someone else, I slow down the process and I borrow from my step five turnaround the entire process, starting with praying for the, starting with saying the sick man prayer, doing the five question mm-hmm. turnaround, asking what God would want for me now, and praying for them because those big things need to be slowed down and they need to be gone through. But if a car cuts me off in traffic, I don't need to necessarily ask myself a full turnaround. I can just like take a take a breath and say, "Thank God we're both safe, and I hope that person gets to where they need to go um, safely." So it's for me like doing the ten step is is making sure that we're addressing everything that comes up. But if there are smaller things, God has done. God has rearranged us in a way where they're just automatic, and we can process them automatically. The big stuff, we have to do formal 10 steps, and that's when we reach out to the fellowship and our recovered fellows, and they help us through something that, that's larger. I hope that's clear. It, it is. It's kind of the difference between a spot check, because I have to do that a lot in traffic. God bless them and change me, you know, because sometimes I'm going too fast, and that's what annoys me. So thank you very much, Becca. I appreciate your share, and thank you, Leah, for all your service, too. Thank you, Sharon. Susie, it's your turn. Did you say Tara? I was thank unmuting. Thank you. Yes. I believe I'm Susie and then Tara. Go ahead, Susie. Hi. Um, I wish I had this in a pamphlet that I could read. Um, <laughs> I'm working on my third step. I mean, my fourth step. I'm sorry, my fourth step. And um, I've done a number of fourth steps in other programs. So, um I've done a fourth step in OA a couple of times before, but I've just joined again. I've just come back. And so how do I know when I'm done? Thanks, Susie, for the question. In my opinion, if anything is still stuck, then it needs to be processed. So if you have done, um, let's say you did a, you know, you've obviously done one other one, right? And you put down mom, you put down brother, you put down former employer. If you have processed those three in a way that they, when you think about them, they don't, they don't feel stuck, then you've let them go and you don't need to put them on this inventory. But if feelings about mom are still there or that employer, if, you know, if, if when you drive by that building, um, you still get a feeling inside or you start having certain, you know, obsessive thoughts about stuff going on, then it still needs to be processed. And, um, and you know, we don't, just because our past has happened doesn't mean we have to write down our entire past history again on an inventory. We're just looking for things that are still stuck because those are the things that are blocking you from your higher power. So we gather anything that's still stuck, we put that down on paper and we do that formal turnaround process in five with our with our sponsor. And that should, when we look at ourselves, that should lift everything out. And then if you have things that are kind of still stuck, that's what our sponsors are here for. We can always revisit things and we can always kind of do these spot checks to make sure that um, things are unblocked. And that's why we do our 10th step every day and that's why we then do 11 because we need to make sure before we go to bed that nothing is still stuck with us. We need to let it all go so that God can reorganize us because God's mission for us is in the morning to, to help other people. So it puts us in a place where we clear everything out so that God can fill us up. God is working through us so that we can help our fellows. 
Thank you, Susie. Tara, your turn. Tara, star one to unmute. Oh, sorry. I was unmuted, but I guess I got had, it got muted. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Becca, for all the insights that you've offered today and from your um, amazing recovery. it's It's been really helpful. Um, I've done the steps um, with, you know, and been recovered and then relapsed and then redone the steps with um, um, slowly and then I did it again with someone rather quickly. And um, it did give me uh, the benefit of having the 10th step to deal with problems that came up, negative feelings. And um, I think a lot of times when people are going through the steps, when my sponsees are going through the steps, um, I have this feeling like we need to get to some solutions. So we need to get them through the 8th, you know, 6th, 7th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, rapidly like they did in the founders of the program got, um, from what I hear, they put people through the steps like within days or hours and then scooted them out so that they would have some, you know, they would have this experience of, you know, something that they have to give and then they would go back and study more and go to meetings and learn and learn and learn about, you know, the more the more of the details of recovery and the in-depth, um, you know, understandings. Um, I wonder what your comments are. Um, thank you, Tara, for the question. Um, I agree that six, seven, and eight should be done rapidly. I mean, after we do five, we rest for that one hour, and then six and seven are essentially done together, um, and then eight is already done for us. Eight is done because in our inventory, we've already written down um, everybody that we could possibly have to make amends to. And it's simply when I'm going through five with them, I'm having them put an asterisk against anyone um, that needs that needs an amends. So when we get to eight, it's just a, it's just simply they look through their list and they make you know maybe they make another list to to make it concise, but it's already done for them. And then eight point five is talking about a game plan. So I have them usually break it out in between, you know, things that they can do pretty easily, things that might take a little more planning, and then things that are, like, more long-term that we really have to make a plan for. So I, I get them started right away on, on step nine because they might have little things, um, you know, maybe a coworker or something that they have to apologize to, whatever it is. It's, they're the smaller things, and it starts getting them practice for making those amends. And then as we go over time, they're they're making um, they're making their other amends. Now I don't I don't stop there for 10, 11, and 12. Once they once we make a game plan and we start on nine, we're already reading again in 10 and 11. Now I've given them 10 and 11 since the beginning, like I mentioned. They needed some kind of structure to not be adding to their step four, you know, to have things not fall through the cracks. 
um, 10 and 11 are worked in a little bit different way now, but they're used to doing their 11-step inventory. So now, now that they're recovered, it's just a whole new experience with 10 and 11, but that support of those steps have been there in some form as they've been going along. So yes, six and seven, I and mean, once you do five, it's an hour, then it's six and seven, six and seven take less than an hour to do eight, they've already got their list. We talk about, in that same session, we talk about the smaller things that they can do for step nine, and then, you know, the next time we meet, we're reading in the book 10, 11 together, um, and then we start talking about 12 and how they can start sponsoring and helping other people and doing more service in their local community. So, yes, I agree. Six, six, seven, eight are boom, boom, boom. Well, can I just take us back then to one, two, three, and four? Because if someone is desperate, can you can you elaborate on that before I before I answer? Do you need I need you to elaborate on that? Are you asking how rapidly two, three, and four should be? Tara, star one to unmute, perhaps. Oh, okay. The system automatically mutes you okay. and you just mm-hmm. don't realize it. Okay. A brief um, question, please, related to steps one, two, three, and four, as you were. Right. And it just seems if people are are desperate and, and ready to do this program, then um, it doesn't take that long to get through one, two, and three, and then we launch into four. So, And four is just a fact-finding, like you said, just really going through what's currently up with with the person, you know, not digging into their past. So, so I don't see the real need to, to take a long time to get through the steps since the founders didn't, and uh, they got really incredible recoveries with people. Um, So let me respond to that, Tara. Let me respond to that. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the goal here? You know, is the goal to get through all 12 steps? Is the goal to call ourselves recovered? What is the goal? The goal is to connect with a higher power. And so if I'm on step two with a sponsee and they're just not getting it, It is my responsibility as a sponsor to help guide them to a higher power, to help them define a higher power that works for them, and to help them take that little leap of faith in step three. Because as I said, if they try to do step four on self-will, they could very easily fall apart. And that's when I get people calling me say, well, I went through the steps and I went through them fast, but something's missing and I'm back in the food. Yes, it can be done quickly. It depends on the person. But if the person is not getting it, how can I advance them to the next step? It's not about what step you're on. It's about the connection to your higher power. It's about making that connection and having God fill you up instead of the resentments and the fears and and our past history. It's, It's about cleaning that out. So if we're not in a place to be able to do those action steps and we don't have God guiding us through that, in my opinion, that's when people fall apart. So I'm not saying that I take three months to do step two. 
you know, it probably takes a couple of weeks to do step two on average because people do get it. We go through the big book. I ask them questions. We stop on each paragraph. I make sure they're understanding what Bill is saying on every single paragraph so that he can lead us through it. But if someone has a mental block, I'm not going to advance them because it's a disservice to them. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Tara. Who else has a question this morning? Sally. Sally. Chrissy M. Chrissy M. Sally A. Was that Susie? Jenny S. Okay, Judy F. Jenny S. Jenny F. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Chrissy M., go for it. Hi, I'm Chrissy. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in anorexia from New Jersey. Thank you so much, Becca. Thank you, Leah. My question is quick, and I've asked this of other people who have shared their experience on special edition before, but outside, but you bringing up your comorbid disorder of having the bipolar is really interesting to me because it would be really hard for me as a sponsor to work with someone who had undiagnosed or untreated disorder. At what point, when you, from your own experience, notice behaviors or things that are similar to, because I have anxiety and I had to have medication for it oh, in okay. order for me. So I'm just putting that out there. How soon uh, into... One hundred seventy six. I don't know I'm if sorry. you all can hear me. I'm sorry, Chrissy. Just ask the question one more time. Oh, sure. How soon into your... Chrissy, star one to unmute. Sorry. You might have gotten muted. How soon into your relationship with a sponsee, if you notice that they might have something that needs outside help, do you mention it or do you mention it? How do you handle that? I hope that's clear. Thank you. It is clear, Chrissy. Thank you. Um, I have not uh, come into this, um, into that kind of a situation yet, although um, not that I'm an expert, but I'm in tune with that, right? So if it were to happen, it would have to be based on my relationship with that person. What I will say is that um, for me, being the way that I see my bipolar disorder is that I'm missing something in my brain. And it took a little while to find medication that could fill that piece that was missing. And I had a wonderful angel of a doctor understand me and be able to come up with a cocktail of medication that fills that part. Therefore, I'm able to look at my life and say, okay, I'm not going to blame my choices and my actions on my disease, meaning my bipolar disease. I am, I'm a person and I have choices and, and I'm going to take responsibility for my life. And that was the difference because when I was younger, I used to blame everything on it. And my mom helped enable me blame everything on it. And then when I became an adult and I worked with a particular therapist, he said, you are a person and you do not define yourself by that. So if I were working with a sponsee and I felt like, um, you know, they maybe needed some outside help, I would certainly say something, most likely. I mean, again, it depends on the person, but it's not my responsibility to fix something that's clinical or something that's, you know, outside of my realm. I am here as a sponsor to help guide you through the steps. Um, I'm a 360 sponsor, so I do help with, you know, when we talk about life things that come up, 
you know, not that I'm playing a therapist, but sometimes it crosses over into just using my intuition to guide people. And it, and it kind of veers from just looking at the steps. You know, it ha- it's life, so it kind of has to have a blend. But I know where my boundaries are. And if it got to the point where it was something beyond just a sponsor responsibility, then I would probably find an appropriate way to say to them, you know, have you have you consulted with a therapist or a psychopharmacologist to see if something's going on? Uh, I hope that answers the question, Chrissy. Thanks, Chrissy. Sally A. It's Thank your you. Turn. Sally, star one to unmute. Oops, I'm sorry. I was chatting away. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Becca. And thank you so much for your um, fabulous share this morning. I'm very blessed. I'm so glad I was able to hear you this morning. Um, My question to you is a difficult question um, that I, for myself, would be very helpful to me. When you are doing the fourth step and you reach that fourth column um, of, uh, you know, was it your selfishness, self-seeking, dishonesty, or fear, and you're doing the paradigm shift that occurs um, within that fabulous framework of the fourth step, my question is, um, I know that you probably have had sponsors, sponsees rather, who have had difficult resentments, and I'm, I'm really referring to the resentment towards your father that probably cropped up in your own inventory. Um, but when you've had sponsees with difficult resentments um, and you know, have to lead them to a place of doing um, the paradigm shift with what's my part, I wondered if you could share with us what you do with those difficult um, resentments uh, like childhood sexual abuse or adult abuse of any kind, um, and and just uh, speak to that fourth column paradigm shift that occurs. I hope that's um, clear. It is clear, Sally. Thank you so much. Um, so I kind of have two answers for this. One, I kind of addressed um, what we do when we have no responsibility. Like in my case, when I was two, I had no responsibility. Um, for me, it did take years of therapy to kind of sort through a lot of that. So when I got to my fourth step, when I said the sick man prayer, I said that sick man prayer over and over and over and over and over again until his actions were removed from the resentment. And so like praying with God and asking, we have to be in a place to want it to go. We have to be in a place to, um, not want it to hold us back anymore, to not hold us in bondage. And I was in that place. And so I said the sick man prayer over and over and over again until it lost its power. And when it lost its power, I could say what I, I skipped the, the questions because I didn't have a part. You know, I skipped the selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, fearful, and inconsiderate because I didn't have a part in that. And I went right to what does God want for me now? God wants happiness for me. God wants me to live in freedom. God wants me to think that I'm beautiful and that my body is, does not have to ever be violated again. 
So I, so that's one side of it. The other side of it is if it's a difficult resentment where someone does have responsibility, I completely rely on God and I listen intently to when they give me the context of, let's say, the resentment of what the resentment is. And God guides me through the answer. God, meaning when someone is getting stuck, like if they say I'm selfish, well, I don't know where I was selfish. Well, I, I, God gives me the words. That's what's so beautiful and powerful about it is that I'm connected to God in a way where he's completely working through me. So the way that I get them to kind of open up and the way that I get that momentum started to get them through those questions, um, it's all God. And I just have to trust that God is going to give me what I need in order to in order to softly help them through that because the difficult ones are really difficult. They're deeply embedded. They're usually huge. But when we get to the end of that turnaround and I witness it being lifted, it is the most amazing thing that I've ever experienced. But God is, it's all God. It's all God in those cases. Thanks, Sally. Thank you, Sally. And Jenny S. Jenny, yes. Mm-hmm. yes, you'll be our last um, question. Go ahead. Thank you. I'm wondering if you can repeat the definitions that you gave of the red, yellow, and green columns when you are first listing the foods. Can you um, explain again which foods go on the yellow column, the green column, and the red column? Hi, Jenny. Sure. Um, so the red column, when I explain it to them, they're foods that people are totally out of control with foods that you overeat with, foods that you know you binge on, foods that you obsess about, foods that when you have one bite, um, you know, or one chip, let's say, it turns into the whole family size bag at, in one sitting. So they're, they're usually binge foods and foods that are clearly really out of control. The yellow foods are foods that are unclear, foods that sometimes they're okay, sometimes they're not. Foods that you play games with, for instance, you know, if you're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you have the lid off of the peanut butter and you've just spread it on the bread and then before you go and you put the lid back on, you take your finger and a big glob of peanut butter and you put it in your mouth and then you put the cap back on. Um, there are foods that you're just uh, confused about. Like I said, the example with the salsa, it's like, well, I don't know if I can have that because I don't know if it's the chips that make me be out of control with the salsa or I don't know if it's just the behavior of the hand-to-mouth with the chips and the salsa, am I going to associate that, the salsa, always with chips and therefore I can't have it? So it's foods that are kind of confusing. And then the green, uh, the green foods are foods that you believe you're abstinent with. Usually it's like you know lettuce and tomato, things that you most likely wouldn't overeat on a bowl of lettuce. Now there are some people who can, and I don't mean to offend because I know that we all have our are different um, allergies to foods. But for me, I'll just say, you know, it wasn't lettuce and it wasn't tomatoes. So it's, um, but it can, but like I said, there can be like mayonnaise or ketchup on there that we don't even think have sugar in it until we look at the label. So it's usually I ask them to put down things that they believe they're not allergic to. And then when we end up going through it, usually always I'm taking things off of the green list because we're actually looking at the ingredients um, as to what's in the food. I hope that was clear. 
Thank you, Jenny, for the question. Thank you to everybody who asked questions this morning and everybody who attended. And, of course, thank you, Becca, for your service this morning, your thoroughness, and a message of hope and possibility. And I'm going to close with the reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.